This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. The TalkSport fan network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So, the only thing left to say is, you win... Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points delivered too so that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Right, welcome back. This is uh, Stanford Chidge, and I'm joined tonight by uh, birthday boy, Mr. Jonathan Kidd, 21 again. I do have to, to say, it, it, doing the shows on Zoom now, we actually get to see, I mean, normally, you know, Jonathan's lunacy is just an oral experience, but it's nice to see it as an audio-visual one as well. Uh, whether Tim is equally enamoured of this, I don't know, but lovely to have Tim Rolls on the show. Always a pleasure. Right. Uh, now, I'm particularly delighted uh, to say that we've got uh, Tim uh, on the show tonight because, of course, we've been doing this thing called 50 Years of Chelsea. And uh, really, uh, the period that we're covering at the moment, which is the early 70s, is a period that Tim knows very, very well, largely because he's written a fantastic book on it called Stamford Bridges Falling Down, which Jonathan and I have been leaning on heavily to do this bit of the show uh, and not only is it a great aid memoir I mean bearing in mind Jonathan went to a lot of these games anyway I was too young uh, but it really you know it's it's it you just because Tim brings it all together basically and it's just fantastic Tim I'm, I'm gonna start you know with the early part of the season really which is very much forms the the, the foundation no pun intended uh, for your book which of course this was the season where the East Stand was demolished uh, you know, pre-season, uh, as part of uh, Brian Mears' uh, great, uh, fantastical project, as it turned out, to have a brand new stadium seating, I think, 60,000, uh, with the possibility to make it 80,000 should the need uh, arise. And they were going to have it, you know, we've got the East Stand, obviously, that we all know and love now, but it was going to go all the way around, wasn't it? It was a wrap round. It was. A bit like, a bit like the Azteca Stadium in Mexico, which I didn't know. I learnt that from reading your book. Yeah. Um, so the East Stand's demolished and the building starts. Um, and reading your book, one of the things that really you kept, as you as I knew you would, it was it was such a Tim Rolls moment when I kept on seeing this written every kind of third or fourth paragraph. 
But where was the money coming from? <laughs> well, I, I think that the hope was that the team would carry on being successful. It was predicated on getting average crowds of 40,000. And, you know, you have to bear in mind that two years earlier that we'd won the FA Cup, we'd won, we'd won in, um, in Athens, the Cup Winners' Cup. We should have done better the previous season in Europe and what have you. And confidence was, was still pretty high. I mean, in retrospect, the team was starting to creak. Uh, and they didn't have the money to, to buy the, the the players they needed, but the season was was set off really. First game at home against Leeds United, so it's on match of the day. Um, one side of the ground doesn't exist, and they haven't tested at all the access to the ground for people going to the far end of the ground and the old north stand, the rickety old north stand. So Chelsea decided in their wisdom. A, not to ask the league to have an easier game, because Leeds was one of the biggest games of the season, and B, not to make the game all ticket. So Secretary Tony Green said, no, it's good to be tested, so we'll be tested. And tested they certainly were. 12,000 people locked out. Leeds team almost didn't get into the game at all. Two Chelsea players almost didn't get in. Crash barriers broke. Um, a, a guy called Brian Gash, who's a Chelsea fan, many of you people listening will know would certainly recognize some away games says the most scared he's ever been at a football match and he's six foot three so it gives you some idea of, of, of the coast on the pitch it was fantastic Chelsea won four nil it was on match of the day but kids had to go on the pitch to escape the crush at the shed end I'm not I presume you were there Jonathan were you I was where were you in the uh, in the we, we were all transferred to the west stand yeah they gave us tickets there and of course, they, it was absolutely chaos because yeah. non-stop. I was just on the end constantly. Nobody had gone to their seats. So yeah. you spent the first 20 minutes having more, more than that. People couldn't get in. The whole of the first half was people coming in and you were up and down, standing there looking at people. And they built the West Stand bizarrely so that the, the gangways didn't come straight down. They came across at an angle. I don't know why they decided that was some kind of trendy thing to do. So you were always having your vision obscured if you were near the end of the row by somebody walking across to get down to another seat. It was absolutely chaotic. I mean, that was a design fault that had been there since the 60s. Yeah. Everybody had everybody had been uh, transferred to these seats for out of the East Stand. There was a kind of, I don't know, expectation that it was a bit better. And it wasn't. It was revealed to be a really crappy stand. Um, and, but yeah. people... People could have died in the crush. In yeah, the well, well, in, indeed. Well, uh, it was so scary coming round the side. But I, I, it was an era where, as with most of the time, it, it was so many crushes and so many things not working. As I explained to you the, before the, the Orient game and the Cup game the year before, the wall yep. had collapsed. And, and everybody went on the pitch to escape the possibility that everything... Because there'd been no... No legislation applied to there's been there should have been some kind of legislation saying everybody had to upgrade the grounds because the grounds yep. were all all built in 1905 and nothing had been or earlier there'd been no upgrading of grounds at all and I think Chelsea was a, a perfect example of that but there was a what was so awful about it was the that wonderful expectation you get at the beginning of, the, of a new season and you're playing dirty leads who we all hated and I keep yep. going on about this we the hatred for Leeds was hugely excessive in comparison with what we think about Tottenham and how we hate Tottenham and all of that rubbish that goes with it. This was 
an eviscerating kind of you are you are a side that we just don't want to we would just want to everybody wanted to beat them and kick them as much as possible because they were so filthy yeah and uh, um and yet you would never have seen the team imploding because of Revy's discipline with them in a way that that Chelsea clearly um, uh, uh, imploded as the season went on. But so you go along thinking, this is great. We're playing Leeds. I wonder what the ground's going to look like, because this is going to be the great vision of the future. Oh, we're going to see all oh, that stand will be demolished. What's happened to the North stand? I remember going thinking, has that been knocked down? I oh, know it's still there, but it's just it, nobody's in it because it was. But it, and as I said on the show last week, um, this business about it swaying, it shuddered last, you know, in the in yeah. the previous season. It shuddered all the time. It used to shudder in the 60s. I remember going in there. You could make it shudder. If everybody all stamped <laughs> at the same time, it, it would all do that. So this wasn't a kind of revel revelation to us <laughs> at all. It was, it was, it shuddered. So I don't know why they didn't keep it going. It wasn't a, a, a hazard. It was the same structure. Um, but anyway, that was empty, but it was still there. So obviously going to come down. But then to be greeted by this, this unbelievable throng trying to get in was scary absolutely scary. You, how did you get in um we had well you had to go round the, the other end you came in through the main entrance and went round the, the side you went but the back of the shed you had to go round and uh, um attempt to get round that way I, I, I think you had to go there were there was a bizarre way you found, i think you went into the shed and round at the top and then you had to walk over and there were, well, there was another kind of stairway up the back and that was really hazardous getting in it's a really hazardous way to get into the west end because that was kind of that was shaky. Uh, I can't exactly remember, but it was it took an eternity, and then you got luckily I got there quite early. But you get in, and then you see this drama unfolding. And once again, this the 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 the, the boys, I suppose, they're given the opportunity to run on the pitch because they're they they the police are trying to make it look as if you know make sure that there aren't any accidents. And some of them, of course, if you look, I've looked at the footage. We've seen the footage of it, which you kindly sent to us, did you get which is on YouTube. You get lots of kids running onto the pitch and celebrating because they knew they're on telly. So it was a, it was like it was a kind of, you know, they're trying to get to the front, wave at the camera. But, but going, they were kids. They weren't hooligans. They were kids. No, they weren't. They were kids exactly. But it's the same. It's the same at the Orient game. There were so many kids who were just going out there because for for reasons they weren't rioting, which was the instant anybody goes to the pitch. Chelsea fans riot. Oh. Oh, I got so fed up with it. I but got fed up with it as a Chelsea fan. The upshot, the upshot of, of course, of that was that uh, Chelsea put uh, fencing round with three layers of barbed wire. It was, it was named Stalag SW6 by the press, wasn't it, Tim? That was the News of the World headline, Stalag SW6. And then Chelsea attempted to say that the contractor had exceeded their remit. That's a lie. Or Chelsea was so incompetent that they didn't actually instruct the contractor. The story I missed from the Leeds game was the Chelsea fans who broke into an excavator and got it started. I love that. Story. Hang on, so I can't hear you, Tim. Jonathan, you made Jonathan laugh so much we lost you. So hang on a minute, let me just re rephrase. And I remember this from the book. Some Chelsea fans, because basically it was a building site on one half of the pitch, wasn't it? And they broke into it during the match and there was a, an excavator there yeah. and they, they did what? They got into the excavator and started it. <laughs> Can you believe while the match was going on? These, these guys got in and, and Chelsea was saying, yeah, it's, it, it's disgraceful and, and we'll have to have an investigation into how it happened. Yeah, I'd, I'd imagine there was. I'd imagine the police asked them to have an investigation. I mean, it just summed up the, the whole day 
was a shambles. And the, the good thing was we won four nil against our most bitter rival. But wasn't wasn't that uh, rather than you know sorry to be a damp squib on all of this, but we we did beat Leeds four nil, uh, which is joyous at any time. But yep. David Harvey went off early, didn't he, with an injury, which meant Peter Lorimer had to go in goal. Yep. Which 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 so they were playing for, with ten men for a while, which kind of made things slightly easy for us. Yeah, it, it, it did, but it's still. You know, you picked up paper the following day and it said Chelsea four leads. Now. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> you know, Revy, you know, Revy, when, when Leeds lost, Revy looked ashen-faced, which is always a joy. Completely <laughs> <laughs> ashen-faced after that one. So, yeah, fantastic. You know. I mean, you know, it, 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 Chelsea actually, you know, uh, what people forget, I think, which I, I often find interesting, certainly picking up from reading your book, is that, you know, Chelsea had had a, a you know, had been by their standards, really successful for the kind of previous, I don't know, eight years. They were always finishing kind of top five in the league. There was a, a building kind of momentum, really, wasn't there, with the cup win that that, that maybe yeah. helped them break through the ceiling and they could challenge for the title. And every, every year for the last two years, people were talking about Chelsea as title contenders. And actually, one, one thing that usually scuppered them was their appalling starts to the season. But this was different because actually... Yeah. Their early season form was really good, and they had a tough start because they played Leicester away next, and they drew one all. They then went to the current champions, Brian Clough's Derby County, uh, where they won two one. They then lost uh, to Liverpool at home. Liverpool ended up being the uh, the champions that season. They beat City at home two one, and City, you know, were always there and thereabouts in that period of time. They drew nil nil with United, and they drew one all with Arsenal. So it was a really good start, wasn't it? It was, it was a good start. And I think, you know, beating City, City should have won the league the previous season when Derby did. They they, they threw it away. And, you know, you look at it, and that starts the season. Beating or playing well against most of the top teams should have set them up for, you know, a pretty high league, league finish, you would have thought, looking, looking at it there. And they were getting, you know, the... the the press was pretty positive. The crowds were down. I think, to be honest, the Leeds, what happened with the Leeds game put a lot of people off for a few, for a few weeks. And I think Chelsea, that's why Mears put the fences up, was to try and attract the fans back. But How I'm does not, that work? Well, exactly. Because it was, it was, you know, I think the, the, the Stalag SW6 headline probably put death back. But, you know, six weeks into the season, Chelsea were looking good. Yeah. Jonathan, do you remember? I mean, were you at any of those early ma- matches? Do you remember what the mood was like? Well, I was at all of them, um, other than the away ones. Um, the mood was 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 uh, really optimistic. But I don't know. We st- I, I've always suffered from that thing of thinking, well, when will the bubble burst? With you know, we were all surprised they'd started off so well. Um, but um, uh, I mean, I just always got the impression that that you were dealing with with several prima donnas. Even at that period, I just yeah. thought the chances were that one of them would throw a hissy fit and not want to play anymore or would dislike. I mean, Hudson spent most of the time complaining about playing right wing. And yeah. I, think, I think that Sexton um, Sexton found it very difficult to impose any kind of discipline. I mean, to be fair to them, they did suffer a horrendous series of injuries. There seemed to be non-stop injuries and Hutchinson only came back for... Uh, for a couple of um... well, that that was really just to try to butt in, but that that was really really sad, wasn't it? Because Ian yeah. Hutchinson, so loved by Chelsea uh, supporters, of course, 
you know, got the last minute goal against Leeds in the first part of the final in 1970. But he'd been out on and off for about 18 months and then he kind of got himself fit. I can't, Tim, can you remember who he came back against? But he, he literally, two matches later, was out again with a knee injury, wasn't he? Back that December, I think, against Norwich. And the crowd was, you know, in a league game. And the crowd was euphoric. He was, you know, serenaded. I think he scored and he got, the, yeah. you know, everything yeah. was fantastic. But, you know, he, he was never, he, after that play, a, a, a long string of games. He, had, he was so unlucky. He had knee injuries. He had broken leg. He had all, all sorts. Because he was phenomenally brave, phenomenally brave player. I think people underestimate just how physically brave he, brave he was. And he got kicked. He got kicked every week. And, you know, you, you read match reports and it would be Southampton kicked him, then Burnley kicked him. And these, these the, I mean, Leeds were dirty. Southampton were actually dirtier. And, and, and I, the game he, when he got his really bad injury in 71, was against Southampton. And it's no surprise to me. When they had John McGrath, they had Jimmy Gabriel and these people who were just thugs. And, and they would go and kick the opposition best player and he was he was our arguably our best player because he was more consistent than Osgood or Hudson or Cook. He he did it every week. He was very good at laying off, wasn't he? he laid off balls for uh, for them. He was a very good yeah. focal point. And of course, his you forget his long throws were a really you know, talismanic way of of adding more pressure because they were really devastating. It was like um, Rory Gillap in all his is 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 genius it was the same thing you're creating a, a, a an extra opportunity that normally you wouldn't have and he could really bung it far post he was so so terrific a, a well, he, man. and he won the, the the big match on itv had a long throw competition which i think he won and you know long throws were, were, were fashionable for a couple of years in the early 70s but he was probably the best exponent and he, he was the foil for Osgood. And Osgood said that, you know, if, if Hutchinson hadn't been injured, he would probably have been, he would have been a better player and we'd probably have been a more focused player. Um, you know, but Osgood was, he had his issues. He was never fit at the start of the season. Hudson was going a little bit off the rails. And, we, you know, as we'll come to in, in a minute, I suspect, Cook, you know, we got rid of Cook and Paddy Mulligan. Um, and... The wheels started to come off. You know? Well, that that is a, that is a good point, actually, Tim. Because sorry, Jonathan, one of the things I wanted to bring up, which I think is a theme that we touched on last week, Jonathan, isn't it? Is that a lot of the disenchantment with some of the you know the better players in the team? So Hudson, Aussie, David Webb, for example, all very ambitious, wanting to capitalise on the success we had and started to get a bit disenchanted with the kind of players that we were bringing in. And, you know, from what I understand, you know, Charlie Cook, bless his heart, was probably getting past his sell-by date. Paddy Mulligan wasn't really getting a regular look in, although he was a good player. So they, they went to Palace, didn't they? Uh, and the only signing we made, really, of any substance that season... I mean, this is the other thing, actually, you know, talking about history, which we are in a way. I love the fact that history always repeats. We play South End, don't we, in a in yeah. a League Cup match, and uh, I think we won. We we won one nil. We scraped yeah. through, played like shit because we were complacent as always. Uh, but playing for South End that day was a striker who, apparently, according to the press, was brilliant in the air, but absolutely rubbish on the ground. And that that yeah. guy was that guy was Bill Garner. So what did Chelsea do? They sign him for a hundred grand, don't they, Tim? Well, not not only that, but West Ham thought they got it. But Sexton sort of turned up at first thing in the morning and, and, and signed him. 
And, you know, Garner was, was an honest player and he was a trier. What gets me is when I was researching the book, I discovered that Leicester bought Frank Worthington from Huddersfield a couple of months earlier for 80,000, which is 20,000 less than we pay. Now, I'm not, I think Worthington then, you know, Worthington, Osgood and Hudson going out after training probably isn't what would, would, wouldn't have been what Sexton wanted. But we, we overpaid considering what we got, really. And, you know, he was, he wasn't, he did, he worked his socks off, Garner, but he wasn't, wasn't what we needed. He was partly to replace um, Hutchinson. But, I, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't a replacement for Hutchinson. And I think, you know, we were, we were deteriorating. Hudson was stuck out on the wing. You know, we had Kemba scuffling, Chris Garn. They were decent players, but they weren't, the, they weren't top class players. We lost Cook. Dory, can you carry on without me for two seconds? Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, and and Hello. I think Hello. selling Cook and, and Mulligan, and it was clear, and it's clear when you read the, the press and you read the, the decent writers, the Hugh McElvenies, the Brian Glanvilles, that Chelsea's defence was not good enough. But we did not buy a defender. We sold one, Mulligan, but you know, we were still had Dempsey, we had Harris, we had Hinton, all decent players, but they weren't top. We were so reliant on David Webb, and half the time Webb was ended up playing at fullback, or he'd play and he even you know went in goal in one game in the previous season. So we, what we should have done probably, rather than bought Garner, was was bought a decent centre half, but we didn't, and we we paid for it that season. We paid for it for the next two years. We didn't buy a defender between a, a top player between like 1969. Uh, when we bought Dempsey and David David Hay in the summer of '74, who we actually bought as a midfielder, and the defence wasn't good enough to to win trophies, and it's obvious in retrospect, and it must have been obvious to Dave Sexton, but the problem was because of the stand, he didn't he didn't really have the money. I think he was given the choice: you can buy a striker or a centre half, and he bought Garner. So there we are. I mean, you know, with the with the benefit of 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 uh, you know hindsight, Tim. Was this really all down? Because, you know, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because there'd be no really good youth players that had come through for quite a number of years. I mean, Hudson being the last one, really. Yeah. So, I mean, we all know that Sexton was a very good coach, uh, very good tactically. Um, I mean, whether he can be whether he can be praised for his handling of the youth and introducing them is a moot point. But maybe there just weren't good enough players coming through. But the, I think the real issue here is, did he actually have the money? I mean, that question we started with at the beginning of this part, where was the money coming from for the stand? Nobody seemed to know. Um, although the club always denied it. I, I always get the feeling he, he, he had two hands tied behind his back when it came to transfers. Absolutely. They kept saying, oh, no, with the money's available for the right players. But it, but it wasn't. And yeah, they, they clearly needed to strengthen at the back. Uh, they clearly needed, you know, Cook went, so they, they were over-reliant on Peter Houseman as a winger, which is why they had to play Hudson wide. You know, I mean, they went mad the previous season, bought Garner, sorry, Garland and uh, Kemba and had to sell Weller as a result. Um, the money that they got for Cook and um, Mulligan sort of paid for, paid for Garner, but they weren't generating the money to pay for the stand and strengthen the team. Other... Other teams were strengthening and Chelsea weren't. We were occasionally linked with players, but they, they were never serious. We were linked with George Best, you know, but that was never going to happen because we couldn't afford to have paid his wages. Now, it would have filled the ground for a while, so it may have worked in the short term, but I think, you know, I don't think a three year contract 
I don't think they could afford it. They just didn't have the, the money. We, we were selling club under Doherty and we were selling club under Sexton. You know, other clubs had, you know, the Moors money in the, in, you know, Liverpool, Everton, getting, getting money from there. Wealthy people at Tottenham putting money in. You know, the Mears families did a lot of great things for Chelsea, but they, they were never, we were never able to, to fund the level of, of, of money going in. I mean, I think in the late 60s, they did, they let us, but David Webb was one of the best signings Chelsea ever made. John Dempsey was a good signing, but we weren't allowed to build on Athens. We got weaker after Athens when we sold Weller and we should have got stronger. And that was the mistake that was made because if they had got stronger, particularly at the back, they could have competed for the league in 72 and 73. But as, as we know, things went, things went in the opposite direction. Well, I- indeed. I mean, in fact, <clears throat> you know, we just talked about the South Ham, South Ham match kind of obliquely, which was in September. Uh, I mean, Chelsea's run of form really uh, up until the uh, what we're going to talk about next, which is the League Cup semi-final against Norwich, was actually pretty good. I mean, we had a bit of a shocker against West Ham and Sheffield United. Yeah. True. But, you know, we, we we had that habit of not turning up. But we then went on a run. I mean, we, we had one, two, three, four, five, six wins and one, two, three draws until we lost again which was up at Anfield at Liverpool who as we know became champions that year and we had a we had an incredibly weak side out that day we, I mean Steve Sherwood played didn't he because yeah, uh, he, he did but, and he played well yeah um, I mean Benetti sorry to interrupt Benetti had got a really nasty injury against Bury hadn't he in the league cup which kept him out for two months he got kicked in the stomach ironically by a colleague from the England 66 World Cup squad John Canelli. it was an accident but he got really badly hurt. And the thing that people probably don't realise about Benetti is just how many injuries. He had He had pneumonia. Yeah, the before Athens, wasn't it? In, in 1971. You know, he was a very, very brave player. Um, and, and Sherwood came in because I think John Phillips was, was injured as well. Um, but, you know, that stage, we did look still like we could be a top four top four club and maybe qualify qualify for Europe as we know the sort of things things sort of went downhill from there but well, we were still in the League Cup you know we we, had, we got we got to the semi-final and we had Norwich City at home who were you know they weren't a great team they uh, they they actually got they finished 20th that season so they almost got got relegated and we played them the week before when Hutchinson came back and and they had a bloke called Jimmy Bone who was a Scottish player came, I think, from Partick Thistle, who was good against us in the league and papers were saying, oh, Chelsea have got to watch Bone. Unfortunately, they didn't because in the first 10 minutes, Bone scored in the in the game, the first leg at Stamford Bridge, Bone scored and he made the other for David Cross and we lost the game 2-0. And, and that, I think some people see that as, as another of these sliding doors moments. If we'd beaten Norwich, if we'd won that game and gone through to the League Cup final, then maybe things would have would have got better. The crowds would have improved. You know, the money situation wouldn't have been as bad. But we were outthought and outfought by a by a, basically a mediocre Norwich side. I mean, that was bizarre, wasn't it? That semi final, anyway, because you know the second leg up at uh, Carrow Road, we were putting up a bit of a fight. It has to be said, we were three two down. We still yep. would have been going out. And and then uh, it got called off for fog. I mean, it got delayed, didn't it? And the ref decided to call it off. And then 15 minutes after he decided to call it off, the fog cleared and Norwich were absolutely incandescent yeah. with rage, weren't they? 
they were incandescent. I think Sexton was was photographed laughing, you know, because he couldn't <laughs> remember how lucky we were. But the fact was, we were, you know, we, we did fight that day. But, you know, we, so we were lucky. So we got a second chance, you know, a week later or whatever. But unfortunately, we didn't take... We didn't take the second chance, you know, and, and it, it was so disappointing, I think, because the League Cup was there for the taking. I think Norwich played Spurs in the final and Spurs were no, were no great shakes. You know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a particularly sort of quality-ridden ridden team. And, you know, so we ended up just early in the new year and we were, we were falling in the league. So I guess I haven't got the figure in front of me, but I suspect we were about eighth in the league. And we were out of the League Cup, so we only had the FA Cup. Now, um, just before you get into the FA Cup, Tim, I just want to, you know, go because you talk about the sliding doors moment, and, and that's yeah. something that I did pick up from the book hugely, and, and it kind of occurred to me. I thought that, you know, the, the, the paragraph or the sentence that you put in there really resonated with me, which was this would be the last major semi final for Chelsea for 12 yeah. years. And 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 I, you talk about a sliding doors moment, and I and I kind of wondered, you know, in 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 a sense, was that the end? That match, that moment, was that the end for the Kings, the Kings Roadside? Well, I, I think it probably was because we never we never got that far again, and all the the ones who who thrived on the adulation of the big games and everything, we just didn't have any big games, and I think, you know, I think. Sexton was bitterly, bitterly disappointed because he obviously thought, you know, we were on a on, on a way to Wembley. And to think, you know, all the pain we had to go through before the semi-final against Sunderland in 85, you know, there were there were two relegations. There was, you know, the terrible, terrible player, you know, team we had and, and what have you. So, so not two relegations, just one relegation. But at that point, I'm sure before the Norwich game, before the first game, everyone thought, well, you know, they're here for the taking. You know, this is Wembley again. And we didn't go to Wembley in a, in a major cup final till, you know, 1994. So, uh, yeah, it was it was bitterly disappointing. Mm. Well, on that highly disappointing note, we're going to make it worse in a minute. We're going to have a quick break, then we'll come back and we're going to pick it up again. And uh, as Tim was mentioning, we still had the FA Cup to fight for. Uh, and uh, we ended up playing Arsenal. And we'll tell you all about that after this break. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. You in? Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Chidge. JK. In all the years you've been following Chelsea, you hardly ever miss a match, home or away. But how would you feel if you couldn't be there and it's not on TV? Oh, Chich, I'd be bereft, inconsolable. The thought of missing my beloved Blue Boy's life. <laughs> it's all too much. <laughs> I know, JK, I know. It's all a bit too much, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> well, panic not. NordVPN have come to the rescue. They have? Yep, NordVPN allows us to watch any match, even if it's not on live TV here. They do? Yeah, they do. With just one click, they switch your virtual location to a country which is showing the match and they act as your cyber bodyguard whilst online, protecting your personal data and sensitive info like card details and passwords. Oh, wow. Great. Uh, but yeah, I bet that'll cost me a fortune. 
Actually, JK, it's only the price of a cup of coffee per month, and you can use your account across six devices. It's a bargain, JK. And best of all, no more tears for you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, NordVPN. I'm so happy. I could cry. <laughs> Where do I sign up, Jidge? Well, to get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com forward slash Chelsea Fancast. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, and you'll help support the Chelsea Fancast. The link is in the podcast episode description box. Real fans, real opinions. I'm Jason Cundy, and you're listening to the Chelsea Football Fancast. Proper Chelsea. Football Fancast.com. All right, welcome back. This is Stanford Chidge, and this, of course, is the Chelsea Fancast. Uh, we seem to have lost the birthday boy, uh, Mr. Jonathan Kidd. I do not quite know where he's gone, uh, but there you go. And I've got Tim Rolls with me. I still think I've got Tim Rolls with me, although he's. Yes. Oh, I have. Your your screen disappeared, Tim. And I'm I'm, I'm oh, here. I'm looking up uh, very small print in in Rick Danville and Paul Duffy's book on that season, just seeing the, the, the games that are coming up. Well, I've uh, well, I've they're, they're all in the notes I sent you. You don't need to refer to that yeah, book. Yeah. My print's bigger as well. I, I've got a lovely view of your very impressive CD collection. Thank you. That's all right. Any time. Um, now. Uh, you know, we're, we're the, the joyously, I have to say, I, I really enjoy looking back at these seasons. And, and, you know, I was far too young to have been around then. Um, so for me, it's a real education, as is, of course, your stunning book, which which features these seasons very, very heavily. Um, now, before uh, we uh, carry on, I should, I should also say one of the things that I've also enjoyed equally is doing these podcasts with some of these guys who were playing in these matches, the Chelsea specials. Uh, and and talk and and <clears throat> it's also fascinating hearing what they had to say about a lot of these mass, uh, matches, and it bears out a lot of what you said in the book. So it's a it's a lovely way to square that circle. And by the way, people um, like Tim's books. You know, it's a good time if if you're stuck with nothing to do at the moment to to delve into Tim's books. Equally, uh, you know, the podcast that I did with those boys. I mean, we did Kerry Dixon, Bobby Tambling, Chopper, Tommy Baldwin, Johnny Boyle. Johnny Bumstead, Gary Chivers, Colin Pates, Canners, and of course Danny uh, Danny Harkins, Eccles, of course. Uh, now you can download them all uh, at chelseaspecial.podbean.com.podbean.com. Uh, it's two quid ninety nine for each one. It's a small price to pay, less than a, cost, a cup of cup of Costa coffee, which you can't even get at the moment because they're shut. So, so spend your money that you would have had on a coffee on downloading these. Uh, and it's easy to do. Once you go to chelseaspecial.podbean.com, there's a, a page there that lists all of the podcasts and you click on the one you want, buy single episode now, it takes you straight through to the pay uh, the, the pay point, which I think is via credit card or PayPal, but there you go. Uh, I commend them to you. You can also follow us on Twitter at Chelsea underscore special and the Chelsea Special on Facebook. Your books are easy to get hold of, aren't they, Tim? Yeah, I mean, you can get them on Amazon. You can get them through eBay. Um and if you want, if if you, I mean, I, I if you do it through eBay, I can, I can sign them, and they're thirteen. The paperback's thirteen quid as opposed to fifteen on Amazon. But you can get the ebook on Amazon, whatever whatever suits you. 
Right, good stuff. Uh, and they, they really are excellent, so I commend them to anybody. Now, we, we were talking you know, about uh, very disappointingly going out of the League Cup uh, at the semi-final stage against Norwich. You know, Undoubtedly, we would have been favourites probably to win the competition, let alone beat Norwich. Um, we're still in the FA Cup, of course, at this stage. So that becomes the one competition which we really have a sniff at. And we get through uh, against Brighton, pretty hard-fought match. I think uh, Chopper got sent off in that, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, he, he got sent off. He, him and a bloke called Eddie Spirit sort of got sent off. The papers described as 17 minutes of madness. Basically, I think Brighton realised they were they were going out and decided to just kick kick lumps out of Chelsea and Harris didn't wouldn't take it anymore, you know? Uh, exactly. Uh, well, unlike Chopper, of course, really, people give him a bit of a bad rep for that, but he, he very rarely did something like that. So he must have been... Uh, ins- I think he, he appealed, didn't he? Because he, he said that... Appeal, yeah. yeah, but he, he very rarely got sent off Ron Harris. I know there were far less sending offs in those days. And he did do some, some bad tackles, but he wasn't... You know, there were people... Ian Ure of Arsenal, Dennis Law, people like that, were sent off far more than uh, than Ron Harris was. Indeed. Um, so we, dis- we dismissed Brighton. Uh, we dispatched Ipswich at home uh, fairly simply, um, and they were a decent side in those days. And then we beat Sheffield Wednesday away from home. I think Bill Garner was sent off in that one, wasn't he? A lot of sendings off in the it cup. was with, with John Holsgrove. The referee said after they kicked each other six times each or something, I had enough and sent them off. I think that game, the, the Chelsea support, as I, I mean, I wasn't there, but I know people who were, the, the Chelsea support that day was was phenomenal. Because they all thought, you know, this is our chance. We can get there. To, to Sheffield Wednesday were a deep. They weren't a great side, but they were a decent side to win that. And then the draw on the Monday Monday lunchtime against Arsenal. And then suddenly it's the biggest game at Stamford Bridge for years. And you know, the the excitement. And of course, the ground only held forty thousand. So Chelsea quite rightly made it all ticket. It was done on CCTV um, because. The, the demand was so high that the, the FA and the Football League never let games go on CCTV in cinemas. But they did that one because they realised that the, the demand was so enormous. You had 40,000 at Sanford Bridge. Arsenal, it's, it's on match of the day. I think it was match of the day, not a big match. And, you know, it was it was a great game. And Peter Rosco got one of those great goals. If you just go into YouTube and, do, and, and just key in Osgood Arsenal, 1973 and it's, it's it's just his finish is superb and he that was one of the games it was a big game and he he responded accordingly and that was one of the great things about Oscar he did usually respond in the big games he did indeed I mean it is it's such a famous goal I mean he absolutely clouted it from outside the area and it went in like an exer set um and of course it was it was the BBC it was it was David Coleman so there was lots yep. of one nil yep. one all Two one, it was fantastic, classic. Uh, and I, I actually, I, was, I watched it as you know because I, I found all the clips for yeah. us to have a look at before we did the show today. And uh, I, I, re- I forgot how economical Coleman was with his commentary. Coleman's commentary was basically just to say the name of the player that it, it had just been passed to until somebody scored. At which point he would go one nil or just read the score. Yeah. Uh, and I just, I mean, and it sounds crap, but actually, it's perfect. It worked very well. It worked very well. Why say any more? All this inanities that modern-day commentators come out with. But there you go. So, Aussie scores a great goal. Um, Johnny Hollins scored a decent goal that day as well, didn't he? He did. He did. And, and what people forget is that Hollins was an ever-present for three or four seasons in a row in the early 70s. 
And the other thing people forget is that he, he, Benetti and Webb were actually the key players in the team. The key players weren't so much Osgood and Hudson. The people who did it week in, week out were Hollins, Webb and, and Benetti. And, you know, Hollins, I don't think, has ever really got the praise that he that he deserves. But he was, he was every week, he worked his socks off. And, and to score against, the, of course, the irony is, two years, three years later, whatever, he was playing for, playing for Arsenal. But that, that game, you know, got a two-all draw. Obviously, they, they were disappointed. But then you go to Arsenal sort of three, four days later for, for the replay. Enormous crowd. I think it's 62,000 or something Something like that. Something 65. Like yeah. Sorry, 62,700. Loads and loads and loads of Chelsea fans there. And Chelsea take the lead. You know, Peter Houseman, I think, scored after about 10 minutes. But the, the game will be remembered for one thing. And the one thing is the, the, the penalty where um, Steve Kemba brought down George Armstrong and it was in the box. The referee gave it outside the box. And in those days, there was obviously no VAR and all everything. But Alan Ball and Frank McClintock were senior Arsenal players, complained to the ref, complained to the line, and he changed his mind. And referees never changed their minds. And McClintock admitted afterwards that we knew the ref, basically, if we shouted at him long enough, there was a chance he changed his mind. So, and Arsenal scored that, and then Ray Kennedy scored. So Chelsea went out. And they were robbed. And it was a huge fuss in the paper. Even Jimmy Hill, who was no fan of Chelsea, said how Chelsea were robbed. Because they were. I mean, if, if, Chelsea, if Chelsea had got if that game, had, you know, if Chelsea had managed to get a win out of that game, it would have transformed their season. It would have transformed the club. The crowds would have been higher. We'd have had the money from the semi-final. And Arsenal played Sunderland in the semi-final, which they lost. But Sunderland weren't a great side either. And, you know, if Chelsea got that sort of money, then it would obviously have helped financially when the, when the sort of, the, when the shit hit the fan going forward. It, and they would have potentially been European football. So it, it would have transformed, potentially transformed the club. But we lost and we were out and the season was basically dead. Yeah, I mean, again, reading it, 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 it seemed like the, the you know, as you, as you kind of articulated there, that was... If if Norwich the Norwich semi, you know, wasn't the end of the Kings of the Kings Road side, then that Arsenal match really, really was. And I think the other thing that comes through, of course, is the fact that it kind of showed us really that uh, you know that we needed to spend money to, if yeah. we were if we were to actually you know capitalise on the potential that that squad had. But basically, the money wasn't available again. And as you say, after that point, it became increasingly unavailable. And it's it's funny how it works, doesn't it? It's kind of a vicious circle, Tim. Yeah. Uh, and 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 Chelsea seemed to be very much caught up in in that in that vortex. Um, after that, our season basically, you know, capitulated, didn't it? I mean, we yep. we went on a terrible run of form. Um, in fact, actually, we lost one, two, three, four, five, five matches on the trot. Uh, and and slipped down the table. There were points at the, t- at the in in the in the running where, I mean, you could if we hadn't won, I can't remember the match now. But if we hadn't won one match, we might have uh, we might have been in the relegation zone. Yeah, I think you know beating Southampton late on. Sort That's of it. But you know we we went you know from being top three or four at the start of the season, we finished sort of twelfth, and and we were we weren't, we weren't exactly in free fall, but we were. 
the, the, I think the morale had gone. I think Hudson admitted himself that by then he, he, his motivation had gone. We'd lost Cook, who was our most, our most skillful player. Osgood was, was, was being more difficult. We didn't have the flair. Hutchinson was injured most of the time. We were over-reliant on Garland and Garner. And, you know, and we had weaknesses, to be blunt. You know, there was an argument for replacing the entire defence apart from Webb because they weren't good enough. But the, the, the money wasn't there, so they had to soldier on with Harris and Dempsey and Hinton and, uh, and these guys. And the, the kids, and uh, the, the, the one asset, the sort of the plus that season was the emergence, excuse me, of Gary Locke. Came through at right back when Mulligan went and stayed in the team. And he was he was a fine young player. He was you know he was the, he after Hudson he was the first one to to come through and cement his place. And he was an excellent, but he was playing playing with blokes who weren't that good, who were who were in decline, who were injury prone, um, and there was a motivational issue with with some of the better players, you know, the, the, the supposedly better players. So it, it was a difficult time. Eddie McCready was, I mean, he he played most games that season, but he was. You know, after that, he was increasingly injury prone. He was getting on. The team, the team wasn't getting better. The club needed the team to get better to pay, to to, to get the forty thousand crowds in, 40, to to help pay for the stand. And the team was getting worse. You only have to look at those that run of you know, it was about one win in eleven towards the end of the season. You know. Which was, I think, amongst the the worst runs that that Sexton had in his yeah, Chelsea management. Yeah, and and in fact, actually, our finish of twelfth was the worst finish we'd had, I think, since nineteen sixty-two. Yep. Which which shows you that you know, for various reasons, which I'll get into in a minute, this was a team in decline. But before we do that, there was obviously the final match of the season, which meant absolutely diddly squat, not zilch, nada, nothing. Which was a match against Chelsea versus Man United, which, funnily enough, was. Uh, 50, hang on, 47 years ago tomorrow on the 28th of April, 1973. But it is incredibly memorable for one very special occasion. It was actually Bobby Charlton's uh, last football match in the game. Certainly for Man United anyway. And uh, the stadium was absolutely rammed. And uh, I mean, were you, were you there, Tim? No, I, I wasn't there. No, in those days, I, I did very few games. I just couldn't afford to go. Um, but... It was, it was. I mean, Chelsea did it very well. They did a presentation before the match. Um, I think Brian Nears gave him a bizarrely a cig- an inscribed cigarette case, but it was done very well. It was on television. It was in all the papers. So uh, yeah, I mean, Bobby. What people forget is how loved Bobby Charlton was. You know, apart from winning the World Cup, he'd, he'd survived Munich. He scored two goals when Man United won the European Cup. And he wasn't just loved by United fans. He was loved by everybody. And I, I think you don't get that these days where a player is so loved. And I don't think, you know, Chelsea fans chanted his name after the game. You just wouldn't get that now. And yeah. I, go on. Go on. Um, no, I was going to say, I saw the footage again. And, and that was absolutely clear that all, all, all three sides of, of the ground were, were absolutely chanting. Yeah. Bobby Charlton's name. It was uh, very emotional. It, it clearly seemed like that, um, uh, and remarkable, a remarkable thing to see actually, because as I said, football is so completely different now. Yeah. I mean, the the other thing, of course, to remember uh, was uh, that 
Peter Osgood was the party pooper because he scored the winner in a one in nil win. And of course, it, it basically this is a, this is also a very famous image for me growing up as a kid because it was always used on things like the big matches, title sequences, and stuff. But it basically bounced off his shin and went in. Really scrappy goal, and he kind of like ends up in the net, falls on his knees apologetically, and kind of shrugs to the shed end, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's, he's laughing. Yeah, I mean, he realizes the sort of because uh, the game didn't actually matter to us at all. The game mattered because because of Bobby Charlton, and I'm sure even some Chelsea fans would have loved it if Charlton had done one of his thirty yard specials. Although to be honest, he was probably three years, sort of three or four years past his best. But it was it was probably just as well. It was Man United and it was him because the crowd was 44,000. Because a, re- a, a crowd a couple of weeks earlier against Stoke was 19,000. Wow. So it, how, it showed how things had, had, had slipped. But that, because it was Man United, who always brought loads of fans, and, and there was always a huge huge interest in them. And you, you chuck into Bobby Charlton. So I think Chelsea did it pretty well. Brian Mears did it pretty well. You know, it was his last game. Charlton seemed genuinely touched with the uh, presentation. Because it wasn't like today where they do... You know, these things are more common. I don't think Charlton necessarily expected it to happen. Indeed. Um, so there you go. So that was that was the 1972-73 season, probably the most disappointing season Chelsea had had for nigh on 10 years. Yes. Um, there are so many issues around this season, Tim, to kind of summarise. Um, and I shall, I shall pose this question. I mean, you know, inconsistent form inconsistent team selections much of that of course possibly down to a ridiculous amount of injuries I think something we used 28 players throughout the season um, lack of goals uh, I think it's the lowest uh, you know I mean usually the midfield chipped in but just to give you a bit of an example Osgood was the top scorer with 17 but he'd scored he'd scored he'd scored 31 goals a few years before so you know uh, Chris Garland got 14 Bill Garner got 10 uh, Johnny Hollins who'd scored loads of goals before he got 4 Hudson didn't score any so there's a, a lack of goals was also a big problem for the side I think um, at the start of the season with Osgood that's right a fiver that he scored 10 goals that season he scored none because his, his motivation had gone and you know Sexton was on at him and on at him to shoot more but I mean for whatever reason, he didn't. He didn't score any at all, and we were, we were, yeah, we just didn't have. We were, we were too reliant on Osgood, and he only actually scored eleven in the league. He got six in other competitions, but you're not going to come anywhere in the league if your leading scorer's got eleven goals. You know. Well, indeed. I mean, it's actually interesting talking about Hudson, isn't it? Because I mean, he had a poor season. He got increasingly frustrated, and he actually put in a transfer request, didn't he, at the end of the season? So that that season really was the beginning of the end for Hudson, wasn't it? It, it was, and I think you know the. You'll come to this next week. The, the things got a lot worse, but I think it was the beginning of the end for uh, for Hudson. I think the, the the team, you know, Webb. I mean, Webb was a, a totally wholehearted player, but I think a number of them, you know, were looking around, seeing that the team wasn't getting any better. They were good youngsters, but they weren't. They were a couple of years away from being ready to to come into the side. The Ray Wilkins, Gary Stanley. You know, Ian Britton played a few games that season. Um, but you know, the, the, the kids weren't ready to come in. The, the ones who did so much under McCready, sort of three or four years later. So I think that you know, the, the descent was there. There was a. They went on tour to Iran that summer, uh, and I don't know the ins and outs. But Rick, 
Rick Glanville wrote somewhere that uh, you know the, it was a oh yeah it's in in Rick's Rick and Paul um, Paul Dutton's book when the end of season tour of Iran became a boozy bad tempered nightmare for Sexton the die was cast so the season ended and they they went off to Iran and uh, you know which was, was an interesting place to go even in uh, 1973 but uh, yeah even yeah Sexton obviously. You know, he tried. He, he he was a nice guy. He, he he was a brilliant coach, but he didn't like dealing with conflict. And obviously, he had, particularly with Oscar and Hudson, he had uh, he had and you know and Baldwin as well. People strong personalities who who didn't like the sort of sergeant major routine. That, well, Sexton liked the players like uh, Peter Houseman, Bonetti, and Hollins, who were family men and went home to their families after training. What he didn't like was those who spent the afternoon in the restaurants and bars of the King's Road. Hus- uh, well, which was Hutchinson, Osgood, Cook, Hudson yeah. and Baldwin. That was the afternoon yeah. drinking club, wasn't it? It was. Um, just going back to Aussie and, and Hudson, I mean, there were rumours, weren't there, all season? Not, not, I mean, I know we, we mentioned that uh, Georgie Best was, you know, Chelsea bound. And of course, the reality was is that there's no way we could have possibly afforded him. But there was also talk of swaps, wasn't there? Osgood for best or Hudson for best. Or I mean, also Rodney Marsh was 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 uh, touted as a uh, a possible acquisition as well or, or swap, which I find really hilarious, given that it was Marsh that was keeping Aussie out of his uh, out of the England team. Yeah, well, it was interesting with um, with Marsh because he'd gone from QPR to Man City to win them the league and they hadn't won the league. And he hadn't settled in there. And I think they was thinking that maybe if you got him back to London, he could he would turn it on again and maybe it was time to move Aussie on. And talk of you know swapping Osgood for, for best. But it, you know, Jonathan, you know, will talks about the, the modern era of, of transfer rubbish. The amount of rubbish written about Osgood and Hudson and Best and Marsh in the in the sort of nineteen seventy two, nineteen seventy three was unbelievable. Literally. It's like, oh, we haven't got much news today, so let's write a George Best is off to London story. <laughs> jo- Jonathan would have had a field day too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it was astonishing. And it all had one thing in common. It was rubbish, you know. <laughs> There's just a couple of things that, uh, that I want to tie. It's a couple of loose ends that I want to tie up, really, Tim. The first one is the uh, the the which I forgot all about actually. And we should really incorporate this to a lot of the chats we do about these seasons. But we had the, the red hung what I call the Hungary kit. So a red shirt, white shorts, and green, red, and and white socks, which I saw us playing a few times from the clips that I got. That was amazing. What was that all about? I, I to be honest, kits aren't my aren't my speciality. There's others who, who know better than me. But I think they, they did do some nice imaginative away kits in the um, in the early and mid seventies. You know, they they seventy six seven they had the green and the one and the red one. So I think it was just an attempt to be to be a bit different. And of course, when you saw that on match of the day when we were playing away in the FA Cup, it did look it did look pretty impressive. It did but indeed. Jonathan uh, might know more, to be honest. Jonathan, anything about the red away kit? Um, no, I just remember it emerging and it looking excellent. Um, because it was such a weird thing to have, considering uh, it bore no relation to any of the colours that the, the team normally had. Um, I went to the uh, uh, the Sheffield Wednesday Cup game away and rather foolishly stood in the um, the cop, the, the Sheffield Wednesday cop, and managed to keep completely quiet till Ghana, um, till the second goal was scored. I can't remember who scored the second goal. Ghana scored the first, I think. I mean, Osgood scored the second goal, I think. 
and um, myself and my mate leapt in the air and were looked upon and I thought we're going to be hit aren't we I thought we've made a very foolish decision to, to leap up here but um, um, we were we, we we looked younger than we looked younger than we were and I think they took pity on us because we were very quite little him and my mate me and my mate um, uh, but no I think we played in the yellow and blue one as well I got that impression that season that that was still a still a fixture perhaps it was considered the third kit I mean I'd like to know who who set that up the whole process of buying those kits because that was a really um really outstanding in the sense that it stood out yes kit i just thought that was unbelievably impressive i mean who would decide to wear a hungry kit unless of course what? the person who who, did, who who somebody sponsored it was from hungry there's always that possibility but you never know in those kind of strange times of or them searching for money um uh but yeah we thought there was going to be a great cup run didn't we and uh um, and unfortunately, I was present also at the Arsenal away game with the ridiculous refereeing decision. Yeah, I've, I've, I've covered the uh, the penalty that wasn't. And yeah, with, with, uh, I, with, with bringing it all back, Tim, that's the, as I keep saying to you, the, the horror of reading your fantastic books, which are really so brilliantly written. And I really do emphasise anybody listening to this. It really is worth reading Tim's stuff because he it makes you feel you're there and it just particularly in my point when I was there and I'm led through this quagmire of awfulness of these things coming back to me of this this penalty that never took never was and we're all going what fuck's sake what, what's going of course it wasn't a penalty oh god and entirely I remember saying to the people I was with uh, watching that he's been persuaded by McClintock bloody yeah. McClintock <laughs> has persuaded the referee to consult and change the change his decision and we thought it was absolutely horrendous that it was well, one thing i want to want to which we haven't talked about which i'm I, I wonder if jonathan would have been at this match in fact maybe she was his guest and not jimmy hill's tim <laughs> and that's yes. yeah bizarrely uh well jimmy hill invited raquel welch uh to Stamford bridge to watch a game she was part of a documentary i believe but it's quite a story isn't it tim it is quite a story. I mean, Hang on a minute. Before we start it, for those of you who are under 50, Raquel Welch was probably the preeminent kind of supermodel actress type of her time, wasn't she, Tim? She was indeed. And we were playing Leicester and she was Jimmy Hill's guest and they were sitting, I think, in the old North Stand. And, but it was, it was all... They were the two biggest self-publicists in England at the time were Raquel Welch and Jimmy Hill. So you put the pair of them together. One had a prominent chin. Yeah. Indeed, I'm not. Yeah, I won't go any further with that. One. But, um, anyway, she was there. The TV cameras were on her. Chelsea thought it would be good PR, but you know she left. I think with about half an hour to go, and walked along the the touchline because the uh, east stand had been demolished, and was sort of shouting, "Come on, Aussie!" with the cameras on her, and it, it, you know, it was it was just a complete nonsense, and. and I think the, the, the fact the TV liked it because the big match showed it, obviously, because Jimmy Hill worked for ITV. And you know, they all liked it. But the, they got slaughtered. Chelsea got slaughtered in the press for this trivialisation and using the whole thing. It was to publicise her new film, Annie Calder, or whatever it was. And, and Hill got really upset. No, no, she's a real football fan. And it was more to her than just publicity. And it, I mean, it got a load of publicity for Chelsea, but... I mean, others may have a different take, Jonathan, but it didn't seem to be like particularly good publicity. It's no, just I, embarrassing, you know. No, I agree completely. And I remember I was there, but it was all because she walked down from the North Stand down by yeah. the 
old east stand it was too yeah. far away because we were in the west stand so we were trying to work out what was going on actually i remember saying oh, it's, it, oh it's, it, is it rackle welsh we're all going is it rackle welsh is that jimmy hill there because we're we're, we're with say the other side of the pitch we're halfway up the west stand um but yeah it was uh it, it sort of went it and then the game carried on and we, we just watched it but it was a kind of distraction but as a fan there it wasn't i think they were saying um uh, uh some people were saying it was a it was you know, hugely distracting for the players, but I, I, I got the impression that they were quite pleased to see her. Actually, I don't think it was wasn't distracting in a, in a negative way. You know, they went, <laughs> oh, who's that? Who's that rather attractive model on the side? You know, um, who looks like Rachel Welsh? Um, it was, um, yeah, it was just an incident, and she just wandered down the side of the pitch for about five minutes, and uh, but, but she got photographed in a Chelsea shirt. Yeah, she did ultimately. Yeah, of course she did. The idea was that Oscar was supposed to have had an affair with her, but I thought that was yeah, a load of rubbish. Yeah, that was that, that blown at the yeah. time. And I think Hugh McIlvenny, poor sort of, who was the, who was probably the preeminent journalist at the time. I think he, he he rubbished that one. He said it was just a publicity stunt for her and for Hill, which it was, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, there you go. Classic Chelsea in many respects. Uh, and, uh, I mean, an interesting season, even though it was ultimately disappointing. But uh, uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed that trip down memory lane. Tim, I mean, not we've Jonathan and I have been saying on the show, it was just absolutely love reading your book. But to have you on the show talking about it as well with the, the, the pool of knowledge that you've gained... Uh, from being from being around you know around then and also you know writing the book has been absolutely brilliant so thank you very very much you're very welcome It's the 90th minute. All your mates around. You've got your McNuggets share boxes ready to go. Your mates already got booked for double dipping and you steal the last nugget, snatching all three points. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver-assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times.